Now, your Bibles, the scripture reading will be taken from Colossians 2, 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He, he is the head of over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with, an, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You may be seated. Please keep your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 2, and let's pray together before we, we study. Father, I want to continue Randy's prayer tonight, asking you in light of all of the tragedies that we experience in this life, and sometimes uh, in a very graphic way, fallenness of the world comes pouring into our consciousness as it has today. So we remember that not only is this world and this city that we live in sometimes a violent place and a place that causes suffering and a place that is filled with tragedy, but it, it's the place where you have placed us as your people to live as people of hope and people of the resurrection with all of the implications and ramifications of these great, great truths of the gospel. And we want to do this, Father, with all of our strength and with all of the skills and endowments of gift that you have blessed us with. We, we want to do this, Father, to bring glory to you and to bless people around us in knowing that there is a righteousness and a holiness and a love and a grace that not only transcends all of this around us, but more than anything else, it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. Every, every single part of it, Father, of the gospel is true. And so as we study tonight to to sharpen our minds and our understanding. We pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way, Father, that we are blessed by our, our study and by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us uh, to begin by uh, reading verse 8 again. Paul says, 
See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. One of the things that, that Paul is, is very concerned about is, is not just the, the truthfulness of the gospel and the truthfulness of the reality of Christ and all of that being pure and all of that being understood, but that, that the false things that are being said and the shallow, superficial, erroneous things that are being said about the Christ and about God and about the kingdom, what it means to be a disciple, that none of that, that falseness take them captive. Paul does, does not want them to be taken captive through what he might call hollow, deceptive philosophy. In other words, you know, it, it may look good on the outside, but when you try to, to, to understand what's going on there, it just, it's just hollow. There's, there's no substance. There, there's, no, there's no body. There's no form. There's no filling. There's no weight to it. Um, uh, yesterday, um, my daughter and, and I were sitting on the couch, uh, something that we don't get to do very often these days now that she uh, married and a mother, but uh, she and uh, our granddaughter was over at the house and we were sitting and, and watching a, a special that was debunking Scientology. And one of the things that she kept saying over and over and over again is how could somebody believe this? And when you stand uh, afar or you're sitting in your preacher father's living room on his couch watching it beside him, it seems so far-fetched to believe these things. And yet, and yet, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on something that is just hollow. The word that he uses for captive is so descriptive. It's the one that, it, that was used when, when a general had gone off to war and had, had vanquished his enemy, had defeated his enemy, and there is this, this, uh, this entourage of people that are tied together and are handcuffed together and sometimes are stripped down together. And they are, it's this long line of captives, of prisoners, that are taken back not only to the homeland, but to the cities as spoils of war. And you see this sometimes in the movies. And the movies can sometimes graphically depict these long trains of captives who are taken from where they're supposed to be and taken to a place where they're not supposed to be. And this is the danger that Paul really sees in, in some of this false teaching and these false ideas that are coming about the Christ, that these, these folks who are disciples of Jesus, just like we are, can begin to understand something that is so erroneous and so wrong directionally from the truth that people can believe that they are actually doing the will of God and living according to His will, but are far from it. What they're hearing in Colossae, as we've already seen in, in uh, earlier studies, was that there were folks that were saying that Jesus was good. They were not trying to deny Jesus. What they were trying to do is to say, yes, Jesus is good, but He's not all that you need. He's not good enough to get you all the way to God. He can get you started, but what you need is something more than the Christ to get to God. It's the special wisdom, the special religion, the special understanding. And if you really want to be enlightened, then you need to get, get acquainted with some of the other avenues that are out there to get you to God. Those philosophers were not trying to deny Jesus. Those, those teachers were not trying to say there was no such thing as Jesus or it's just a hoax. 
what they were saying is that, yeah, Jesus, there was a real Jesus. They're not denying him. But what they're doing is diminishing him. What is the first thing that begins to happen when adultery takes place in a marriage? The one who is supposed to get the exclusive devotion and love and attention and passion, they begin to diminish in your thinking. And as they no longer shine and are uh, extravagantly beautiful in the way that you look at them and see them, as that all begins to diminish, what might catch your eye, because they are being diminished, does catch your eye, and you begin to see other possibilities for life. The philosophers were not trying to deny Jesus, they were just trying to diminish Him. And that's why Paul says one of the most powerful statements that you will read in the entire Bible about Jesus. He says in the very next verse, in verse 9, for in this Jesus that they're trying to diminish, in that Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, you know, that Jesus is that, in, that, that invisible nature of God made visible in verse 9 it's not just the image that when you see jesus you see god he's saying that the fullness of god the fullness of deity is in christ himself and that's an incredibly confrontational verse when you think about how all of the other religions how they present themselves in a prevalent way today god is not saying that he put himself in anything else or in anyone else he only put himself in all of his fullness, in Christ Jesus. God put all that he is in the Christ. And if you want to discover the totality of God, then there is one place to look, and Paul says, look at the Christ. Which brings up a pretty important question for us. Surrounded as we are with, with, with you know, sort of a, a free-flowing culture of communication and ideas. We live in a world of ideas, and the Internet has just made it all that more prevalent, and there are so many sources coming in. The important question for us, living in the culture as we do in the world, is thus, how big is our Jesus? How big is our Christ? Paul says that Jesus is the embodiment of the fullness of Jesus. Is the Christ that you follow, the one that you pray in His name to God, uh, every day, multiple times during the day, the one that you think about as you partake of the Lord's Supper, how big is that Jesus in your heart and in your soul and in your mind and in your sanctified imagination? Is your view of Jesus big enough to supply your every need, which is Jesus in reality? All of God, Paul says, was in Christ. So all you... All you have to need and all you, you need is supplied when you have Christ. All that God can give to you, He grants in and through Christ. And so we begin reading, the, or we continue reading the text. In Him you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. 
when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. A couple of things. What Paul says, in Christ, the problem of death is resolved. You know, one of the funny things about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't ever treat death as a someday down the road kind of a problem. You know, when you look at our own culture, especially, you know, if you happen to get up early in the morning or you find yourself on a rare night staying up really, really late, those info commercials tell you more about your culture than you really want to admit. But we Americans spend a lot of money and effort putting off until the future any prospect of death. I had a counselor friend one time tell me that the people will spend a lot of money and a lot of energy convincing people that they're okay. But the Bible, what we, what we try to do with death is to say that it's down the road someplace, that death is, is someday in the future. But the Bible, one of the things that is, is, is great about getting intimate with the Bible and the Word of God is just how realistic it is. The Bible treats death as a, as a problem right now. The Bible recognizes that man, that you and I, men and women, human beings, they are dead right now. The book of Ephesians that we're going to study next week, you find a lot of similarities between the thought of Paul in writing to Ephesus and the thought of Paul writing to Colossae. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The Bible says you're dead. One of the things growing up that, uh, that my mother did a great job with was uh, decorating the house for Christmas. And this was, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember a day when nobody ever wanted to have an artificial tree. Those things were ugly. What they wanted was the real thing, a, a, a balsam or a scotch pine or some kind of a Douglas fir. And they would go out and, and we would do the same thing. We would go to the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club or the Lions Club in the town that we lived in and we'd buy our Christmas tree from them. And one of the really great things about that, and my dad was sort of a stickler for this, he'd say, you know, we can't start decorating this tree as soon as we get home. We've got to put that tree, water it, we've got to put it in the stand, stand it up, and then let the tree warm up so that what happens? It begins to open up, right? And when it opened up, how did your house smell? Like pine trees. You know, one of the most powerful memory um, evokers that we have as human beings is smell. And when you smell, you know, today we, we buy an artificial tree, and, but we love the smell so much that we buy the candles that smell like pine trees, right? So then when we walk into the house, it, it smells like Christmas. So you get the tree, you put it in the stand, you put a little water into it, you get the little package of whatever it is. It looked to me like baking soda, but it was tree preserver. You put it in there, and then it opens up. It fills the house with the smell of pine. You decorate it with tinsel and ornaments and lights, and you make it bright and shiny and beautiful, and you stare at it, and you love it, and you listen to Christmas music in the dark while you look at the lights of the tree. But in reality, the tree is dead or dying. 
And we would just get to the point where we're really enjoying that tree. And then I would hear my mom say every year, I've got to get the vacuum cleaner out and I've got to start vacuuming up all those needles. It was a sign that the tree was dead or the tree was dying. It was cut off from the source of its life. And we're a lot like that Christmas tree. The tinsel, the ornaments, the lights, but we're cut off from the source. And we don't know it because we're beautiful. Or we make ourselves beautiful in our own eyes. Or we make ourselves beautiful in the eyes of popular culture. But the reality, we're cut from the roots, we're cut from the source, and that is our biggest problem. Death is the ultimate point of separation from God. It's God who gives life and to be separated from God. It's not just to see God. It's not, it's not just to not be in God's presence. It is to be cut off from the source of life, of, of real life. Death is to be cut off and separated from God. And if that is our future, and it is because of sin, then what chance do we really have? Who is it that can help us? And the easy answer for Paul is the Christ can. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, after he said, but for you, you were dead in your transgressions. But because of his great love for us, he says in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The Bible says that through Christ, God has given an answer to death. And the answer is the Christ. Uh, I've told you the story of, and I I don't even know if it's true or not, but it's a great story, so I'll tell you anyway. Uh, There was a Brazilian missionary who ran across a tribe in some of the primitive areas of Brazil. And this tribe not only was living in a primitive area, but they were very primitive. They had very little contact with the outside known world. And they were being decimated by illness that the missionary knew could be uh, healed and and remedied by a medicine that had been discovered and was available to them. The only problem was that the tribe, being very superstitious, would not cross a river to get to the place where the medicine was. They thought that the river had a lot of demons in it, a lot of monsters, and they were deathly afraid of it, would not even get close to it, would not even get their ankles into the water. But the missionary jumps into the water. He's splashing around in the water, but he could not get the tribe on the banks to come into the water. Finally, he dives underwater. He swims underwater all the way to the other side where he surfaced. And on the other side, as he comes up and he's sputtering, he's gasping for air, he hears the tribe clapping and hollering on the other side. Why? He had shown them that by going through the river himself that it was possible to get to the other side. The Bible says that Jesus has done the exact same thing. The resurrection is not that Jesus bumped up against death and bounced back. The resurrection is something completely other. It is Jesus hitting death and going through it to the other side, the first fruit of the resurrection. Resurrection is is much more profound and deeper and important than resuscitation. The Bible says that Jesus has been there, and he is the answer to my state of deadness. Your baptism, when you were baptized into Christ, immersed into water, that was a declaration of faith that everything that happened to Christ in death 
and in resurrection is now something that you're participating in too. When Paul writes about this in Romans 6, the word symbol is never used. When you're baptized into Christ, you are participating in His death and burial and resurrection. Your baptism was a declaration of faith that everything that happened to Christ in death and in His resurrection is now happening to you. And so he says, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith. It's not what you're doing. It's your faith in the power of God that raised Him from the dead, becoming a part of your life in that act of faith of being baptized. And raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive. God made you alive with Christ. Now, you, you know, as, as, a, as a, a guy on the other end of middle age and a guy that happens to see himself in the mirror every day, I, I know that you can look at this body and it's really not that much to look at. I try not to do it myself that much these days. But did you know that there is a life that is flowing through it that death cannot touch I will never again be separated from God. And neither will you. One day I will receive a glorified resurrection body and it'll be perfect. And it'll be something to look at. Like yours. But the life that God has, has, uh, has given to me in Christ never ends. Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all that you need to be free from the tyranny of death. But there's a second thing that's related to it, and that is in Christ, the debt is resolved. Because of our sins, we have this enormous IOU with God. You know, the funny thing about uh, Western civilization, Western culture, is that you know, we, 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 we always look down on, on certain kinds of, of punishment and the paying of certain kinds of consequences. But the bottom line is, we don't want to live in our worst nightmare. We do not want to live in, in a universe where there is no justice, where there is no hope of things being put to the rights. It's something bigger than just an IOU. It's, it's this tremendous debt. It's, it's a debt that is owed. And so he writes in verse 13, He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. That word cancel means to erase. I'm a, I'm a fountain pen guy. Got the ink wells, have several ink pens. I convinced myself that uh, I can't write with a regular pen that may cost $2. I've got to have something that's a little bit smoother. And the thing about that ink pen and that, that fountain ink pen is that once it's on the paper, it's on the paper even if it's a smear. You're not going to get rid of it. And for anyone who is sensitive about their own life, the sin that we know in our thought life, in our hearts, in our souls, that sin just seems at times to be indelible. But what Paul is telling us about the power of God 
things that would seem indelible, except in the power of God, it, it's hard to forget them. It's, it's hard to forgive them. Except that's part of what the power of God being manifest in our life is all about. There is a power, not just a decision, but a power of God to forgive and to erase a debt. To erase it. What seems to be stuck on us, this, this indelible stain of our human condition, that, that we can't, we, we just struggle with our thought life and our, our affections, our emotions, all of these things. It is in the power of God not just to forgive it, but to erase it as if it was never there. Our debt has been wiped and we can't find it anywhere except in our own inability to forgive ourselves. A Hebrew writer is writing to a church. He's trying to make the Christ look great. You know, the whole idea of the diminishing Christ and everything else may look beautiful. So he's, he's raising the, the beauty level of Jesus in the, in the eyes and the minds of those people he's writing to. He says in chapter 8, verse 12, as God speaking, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. You may remember that passage in the Old Testament. It talks about, and the memory of the former things will be as if they weren't. You know, most of us have the same problem. We can't forget what the highest court in the universe has already forgiven. Why? Well, for most of us, we were taught that there was no such thing as a free lunch. I remember the first time that somebody um, put down on a piece of paper, N-S-T-A-A-F-L. He said, Know what that means, and you'll do, you'll do okay, young man. I said, I don't have a clue as to what that means. He says, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You've got to pay for something. At least let me get the tip, right? Grace, the fact that God erases and cancels everything, is too good to be true, and so I can't trust it. You know, my father-in-law was, was a really outstanding golfer, and he has a, a book by a, a great golf pro by the name of Harvey Pinnock. Harvey, uh, since the 1920s, you know, nearly 100 years ago, he began keeping golfing notes in a little red book. And when he was into his retirement years, he showed the book to someone and asked if there was any poss possibility that someone would want to publish it. And there was someone, Simon and Schuster. They gave him a call that day, and um, uh, the person with Pinnock's book said, this is a great book, you should publish it. And they, they were given the idea and they decided to go with it. The next day, they called and with the news that they wanted to publish the book and that they would advance Mr. Pinnock $90,000 to publish his little red book on golf. How many of you have it? I mean, there, if you play golf, you know this book. Well, the friend who was with Harvey when he got the phone call said that Harvey got a serious look on his face and said that with all of his health problems, he didn't think he would be able to advance them the $90,000. It then had to be explained that they were going to give him $90,000 in advance. It's a blessing for him in order to publish his book. We're so much like that, right? We want to pay for what has already been paid for. Now, to be successful here, we need to make our minds up that we're not going to listen to the father of lies. He has made a career of convincing people that the bill of our debt 
has not been erased, that it's still out there somewhere, and that it's going to show up when you least expect it. And one of the saddest things in 35 years of ministry is for someone to believe that grace is so beautiful that it can't be true and that you can't trust it is for them in their own heart of hearts and mind of minds at the very end of their life think that that bill is coming due. That someone's going to find it and you're going to be in a mess. But why should we listen to the biggest loser in the universe? The most profound defeat, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he writes in chapter 2, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan is down. Christ is up. Which brings us to the very last thing, and very quickly. In Christ, the power of darkness is taken care of. The birth of Jesus, in a lot of ways, was D-Day. We send out all of these little nice Christmas cards with everybody smiling, hair in place, and some of us shaved in our best clothes. But in reality, you know what the birth of Jesus was? It was, it was an invasion. It was an act of war against the gates of hell. Every time that Jesus healed someone, it was an act of violence against the powers of darkness. And the battle culminated in the looming cross. And John writes, Jesus is speaking, now is the time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. The battle was won when Jesus was lifted up. That was the moment when evil was judged. Do you know what they did to Jesus? They stripped him down to nothing. He was naked, right? And they spat upon him, and they mocked him, and they lied about him, and they punched him in the face, and they beat him with, 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 with leather, thongs with, with, with pieces of glass and stone at the end of it. They stripped him of everything, and that's what it looked like in the human world. Disgrace. That's why they had crosses. Not just to kill, but to disgrace and dishonor and discredit. But if you had been able to see into the unseen world, you would have seen evil stripped and humiliated and disgraced. Satan and his armies were thrown down when Christ was lifted up. And the cross became Jesus' vehicle of victory. And every baptism, every baptism is a power encounter with Satan in which he is forced and obliged to relinquish his hold on someone's life and to recognize the superiority and the authority of Jesus to the glory of God. And when we walk in the name of Jesus, as we journey to heaven, that is a journey Satan has to acknowledge the rest of our time. We were meant to live free from his domination. And you don't need anything else to live free from the satanic influence of Satan. The enemy recognizes the authority, the blood of Jesus, and the power of the forgiveness, and the erasing of those sins. The enemy recognizes it. And that's why the brother of Jesus would say some years later, submit yourselves then to God. 
resist the devil and he will flee from you. I don't think that was hyperbole. When a believer stands up in the authority of Jesus against the powers of darkness, the devil has to flee. And the, the baby philosophies of the world just don't cut it. Especially when there's nothing that separates you from God when you're in Christ. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds will be down here at the front. If there are ways that we might minister to you tonight, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand together and sing with all that we are and all that we have the praise of God. Let's stand and sing. Restore my spirit, Lord, I need restore.